Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Grants Podcast. Uh, I am Jim Grant. I founded this publication and continue to edit it. And um, I want to talk today um, uh, with my deputy editor, Evan Lorenz. Hey, Evan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Excellent. Um, talk about um, the name in the banner, that is interest rates. Uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer is the name of our sheet, our publication, 12 pages every two weeks. And you know, when I, when I founded this thing in 1983, we actually had interest rates. God, they were fabulous. You put money in the bank and pretty soon you'd have more owing to the accretion of capital through the compounding of interest. Then came the great financial crisis at, uh, at some length and uh, interest rates seemingly vanished. Um, Evan, time does fly. And uh, I got into the business well before what turned out to be the beginning of the greatest bull market in bonds, probably in history. It began in, uh, in October of 1981, on the 1st of October to be exact. And uh, it has lasted possibly to this moment. We now speaking early 2017. But, you know, we at Grants think that, um, uh, that it ended in July of 2016, which would make it a uh, 35-year uh, uh, bond bull market. Mm -hmm. Pretty fine. So what I would like to talk about today with, with Avid is, uh, is the nature of cycles and interest rates. One of the funny things about uh, the bond market, about fixed income securities, about the interest rates that, um, that define their value, um, um, is that these interest rates tend to move in generation length cycles up and down. Nothing like this in other departments of finance as far as I know. I mean, stocks don't move in generation length cycles and neither does real estate. Uh, but, um, you know, in this country, in America, uh, interest rates uh, uh, peaked around the time of the Civil War. This is the 19th century, about 1865-66 and they declined more or less persistently until about 1900. And they rose from 1900 to about 1920. And they fell from 1920 to 1946, and they rose from 1946 to 1981. That was also a 35-year cycle. And as I say, perhaps they have, uh, they have described a 35-year arc of decline these rates have from 1946 to 19, uh, 2000 excuse me, and, and 16. Uh, why this uh, pattern exhibits itself, I don't know. I, I have asked around, I've thought about it, I can't, I can't come up with an answer, but it, it seems to, seems to. We can, one can't dogmatize, but it seems to. Now some of these cycles um, are outside of American experience or much even longer, much longer. So in, in Britain, uh, bond yields, uh, government security yields, they call gilt, gilt yields in Britain, fell from about the time of Waterloo, about 1815, till about the close of the 19th century, along about 1895 or 96. Remarkable. Um, you know, um, Evan, so one of the great questions, of course, is that let us say, let us hypothesize that rates did indeed describe a generation length bottom uh, didn't uh, execute this great event, this, this cyclical climax in the summer of 2016. So one question is, well, how, how would you read that? How do you, how do you, what makes you think that? 
And uh, a second question, uh, I guess rather more pertinent, is, uh, is so what? Then what? Uh, what does history say about the next cycle up? So, um, uh, you know, in the summer of 2016, we, we, we collected um, some, uh, uh, some anecdotes taken from headlines that showed a positive compulsion on the part of investors uh, uh, to own fixed income securities. What are the more striking of these headlines? And I'm going to ask Evan to read some of these things. He's got a much better reading voice than I do. One of, the, one of these headlines um, showed that, uh, um, uh, that the people have come to regard bonds not as, had come to regard bonds not as income producing vehicles, but as kind of islands of safety. Um, um, you know, they, they, they thought that, uh, that something about bonds were intrinsically safe, which is kind of a, an amusing thing, given that um, back in 1980-81, bonds were, were dubbed certificates of confiscation, meaning that they were intrinsically unsafe, so said people. And they were not intrinsically unsafe then, nor are they intrinsically safe now. But um, here, is a, uh, here are a couple of um, headlines um, um, uh, that, uh, I don't know, Evan, would you favor us with a dramatic reading of some of these things? Um, where, um, there are three of them, starting with, with the, the, something in the junk bond market. You might remember them rather well, Evan, because <laughs> Valvoline at the top. Valvoline's junk bond deal leaves investors clamoring for more. Hot money fleeing negative yields shelters in outer Mongolia. Yield stampede sends emerging bond flows to fresh record. One of the things remarkable about a long cycle is people tend to take that as how the world always works. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of business models on Wall Street built up on the idea that um, stocks and bonds should be negatively correlated because every time there's a problem, bond yields will go down and um, stocks will go down, which means that bond prices will go up. Uh, one of the big uh, investment flavors du jour is uh, risk parity, where people implicitly buy a lever up a portfolio of bonds to hold against a portfolio of stocks in order to balance out the risks between the two of those. But if we really are going into a bear market in interest rates, um, bond yields could rise even if stock uh, prices fall. Uh, you've, I, I'd love to kind of understand what do you see in, for investors who are trying to put capital into the, uh, to work in the market today about what this means for their portfolios? Yeah. Well, uh, I, th I think the, uh, you know, the uh, now and ever, the, uh, uh, the great uh, uh, touchstone of investing must be uh, a margin of safety and, and evident value, or indeed perspective value, that is uh, also very important. But let me let me at least describe uh, what happened the last time there was uh, a turn in interest rates from falling to rising. And this, uh, the the year in which rates bottomed was 1946. Now it happens, Evan. I was born in 1946. I know I only look like I'm 30 years old, but I was born in 1946. And uh, uh, I was born in July. Now, the bond market bottomed in April, and I wasn't around for that, but my mother filled me in in the few months in which I was, you know, was, was not around. And uh, long-dated yields bottomed in April 1946 at about 2.08%. Now, that's not so very different from the yields uh, that were on offer uh, last year. Uh, actually, uh, uh, they were different in that it was a positive 2.08. You could, in... 2016 find upwards of $15 trillion worth of sovereign bonds that were priced to yield less than zero, which is something 
heretofore unseen in 5,000 years of recorded interest rate history, uh, which, by the way, is a sighting that led us at Grants to think that something perhaps was excessive about bonds in the summer of 2016. But in 1946, rates bottomed in the long-dated Treasury at 2.08%. So a question, how fast did rates go up? Well, they took their sweet time. They, 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 they took 10 years, did the same securities, 10 years uh, to get to a yield of 3.08. <laughs> so that's kind of encouraging, right? It means that not, there's no necess not necessarily any hurry about it. And then it took, uh, so that was 1956, 100 basis points or one full percentage point in 10 years. And um, uh, so fast forward 10 years, 1966, and the same kind of security, long treasuries, were at about 4.5%. So there was, there was nothing apocalyptic about the move from low rates to higher rates at the start. The first uh, 20 years or so was rather measured. Um, the Fed seemed to be in control of things. Inflation was measured. In fact, um, for about 12 consecutive months, 1955, 1956, um, the CPI um, uh, printed at a negative rate, meaning there was negative inflation, what we call in the trade deflation, and nobody cared because, because know, the prices were down. They, they thought that was good. The shoppers thought that was a good thing. Oddly enough, they thought it was a good thing to go into a store and find things that were cheaper. Now there's an entire ideology built up against such a sighting and prices. But uh, um, uh, So it was 20 years of very measured upside movement in rates. Um, and then kind of all hell broke loose. Um, 1967, 68, 69 were years in which rates they became 6% and then at 7%. Nobody had ever seen the likes of a 7% treasury since at least the Civil War when the Union itself was in peril. And I remember so well the, uh, the salesman talking about the time, you had to own this, 7%, fabulous. And today, of course, we would say, fabulous, 7% from a treasury security would, who could imagine it? Uh, but back then, 7% became at length 8% and then uh, 9%. And um, uh, all this was in the context of a world monetary system that was uh, popping rivets and uh, coming close to breaking down altogether, which it did in 1971. Uh, the Bretton Woods system, by which the world's currencies were fixed as to exchange rate, and they were all tied to the dollar. The dollar was exchangeable into gold at one, uh, $35 to the ounce. And the other currencies were, major currencies, were tied to the dollar at fixed rates of exchange. So uh, at one remove, they too were exchangeable into gold, uh, in theory. Uh, that broke down in 1971. In the breaking down, uh, the world of interest rates was rattled. So the 70s progressed. They were a time of, of uh, brutal inflation. People today talk blithely about how they want more inflation. <laughs> uh, yeah, be careful what you wish for. Prices rising at three and four and five percent. Well, that was kind of uncomfortable. Then it came six and seven percent, eight percent, upwards of ten percent by the time the Carter administration had run its course. And by the time the Carter administration did run its course, the dollar exchange rate was being pummeled and uh, inflation was running in the double digits. And long dated treasuries were yielding not seven, not eight, not nine, but ten percent um, on their way 
to 15%. 15%. And this was after the hero of the inflation cycle, Paul Volcker, had come into the Federal Reserve in, I think, 1979. And what to me is so uh, uh, so striking and, and, and uh, in good measure inexplicable is the final blow off of yields, the final um, uh, give up of all the bond hopefuls, of all the bulls who wanted to own these securities, paying yields never before seen, 10% certainly never been seen before, at least not in modern times. And the bulls who wanted 10% and got it uh, wanted 11% a little bit less because that meant the bond prices, of course, were falling. They wanted 12% still less, and by the time it got to be 13, 14, 15%, they wanted out. And that is a little laboratory in human behavior, right? 15% is a much better deal than 10%, <laughs> but it also uh, brought with it the fact of loss of principle and the prospect of still more loss. Uh, bonds then, as I said, being blackguarded as certificates of confiscation. So that was the that was the state of affairs in 1981, and um, and by that time commodity prices had uh, peaked, and Paul Volcker was plainly in charge. The Air Traffic Controllers Union had buckled under the Reagan administration's uh, tough love, and uh, it seemed as if the problems that had uh, blotted and uh, and uh, terrified, really, the 70s had been put in the rearview mirror. That's what it seemed like. And uh, uh, at long last, 1982, the stock market got up ahead of steam. It went up. The world seemed to be mended, and America seemed to be well launched into an era of controlled inflation and falling interest rates. But then something uh, something happened uh, in 1983, 84. Uh, yields instead of uh, conforming to script and continuing to fall actually went up again. And in the springtime of 1984, 30-year uh, treasuries were priced to yield <coughs> 13%, a 13 and a quarter, 13 and a half, a 13 and seven eighths, and one day, about in May, one day, uh, uh, they, I think they touched 14%, 14%. And you could have bought them um, in a zero coupon form, thereby eliminating reinvestment risk, reinvesting those coupons. That was all done for you by the arithmetic of a zero coupon security. You bought it at, say, 40 cents of the dollar, 35 cents of the dollar, and you redeemed it at 100 cents of the dollar. All you had to do was, was buy it. One decision stock, bond. Um, it touched 14% did this particular bond at a time when the CPI, consumer prices, were printing at 4% or I think even a little bit less. There was almost 10 percentage points of, of real inflation adjusted yield available to people who would only, if they only had thought that the treasury wasn't going broke and um, that, the, uh, uh, that uh, the Federal Reserve was not going to reinflate the system. So all of this history is in the service of the observation, my observation over the course of uh, many, many years of observation. It's in the service of the truism that, um, uh, that markets uh, which supposedly and, um, and, uh, and uh, rightly ought to be looking ahead, sometimes, these, sometimes they look back. Mm -hmm. you know, people say the markets are efficient, and I, I agree. I think the markets are efficient 
to a degree, they are just as efficient as the people who operate in them. That is my reading of the efficient markets doctrine. And in the springtime of 1984, they were um, efficient or other, efficient, I suppose, deserves a rigorous definition. Um, I will forestall and, um, and, uh, and put that off another day. I, 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 uh, but I think that we can at least agree that in 1984, the markets were not especially forward-looking. In 1984, people demanded high interest rates because they thought the government was going broke. Today, people demand de minimis interest rates because they think the government is apparently solvent. In 1984, net federal debt as a percent of GDP was 33%. Today, it's 82%. I'd love to get your thoughts on the perception of investors and how those perceptions actually match up to reality. I think, I think the, um, uh, every market needs a narrative. Mm-hmm. And often I think that the stories are manufactured to, uh, to, to rationalize uh, conduct that would have occurred anyway in the, in the absence of the proffered narrative. But uh, a narrative uh, it kind of makes everything seem at least defensible. So if you're going to uh, forswear the opportunity to, uh, to buy what amounts to an equity return with no equity risk, you need some pretext, right? You can't just mm-hmm. say, I'm not going to do it because because I don't feel like it, because I, I don't feel like getting 14% risk-free for 30 years. It's not, it's, you have to say, well, I, I'm, I'm going to force, uh, force whether because, um, because the, the government's fiscal situation is out of here. The Reagan administration is spending us into rack and ruin. That, mm-hmm. was, that was part of the storyline at the, at the lows in bond prices and the highs in rates. So I, again, I, I think that uh, I, th- I think that oftentimes the things that you read, the reasons that you read for market action on the web or in the newspapers or even in Grant's Interest Rate Observer are, are, are reasons that, that people uh, produce because they have to meet a deadline. <laughs> because they, they need to fill this, 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 this space with something besides the market went up or the market went down. That's very dull copy. Uh, rare is it that anyone making a career in finance sees something truly new. Uh, most everything has a precedent. Uh, human beings have been dealing with money, profitably or otherwise, for millennia. Uh, but we live in a time of, of, actual, of actual novelty. Uh, negatively yielding sovereign debt is one such novelty, and it is, uh, it is a doozy. Um, uh, so interest rates, uh, unusually if not uniquely among financial phenomena, trend uh, or tend to trend in these long generation-length cycles. And uh, uh, you know, one forecasts at one's peril, but one must still think about the future. And what we at Grants have come to conclude is that yes, a 35-year cycle of rising bond prices and falling bond yields ended. It ended in the summer of 2016, at which point we said, and I now quote, leave it to an author to quote himself, I'm going to quote Grants, "Um, if practice makes perfect, Grants is unrivaled in calling the top in bond prices. We have done so repeatedly and over the course of many years, even if not lately, since 2014 our line has rather been one last gasp for the bulls. We now say, I continue to quote from us in July of 2016, we now say that the last gasp has been gulped. With all the fluency that comes with study and repetition, we say that sovereign debt is the biggest bubble since the Bronze Age or maybe since ancient Sumer. The notion that negative yielding bonds denominated in a fiat currency or a safe asset is a misconception that belongs in the next edition of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. 
And that is our final say on the subject. <laughs>